0: Alright guys, before we get into this week's episode, which I know you're all excited to hear about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, I wanted to talk about Divergent Media. So you've heard me doing other advertisements on this show, and I met with the Divergent Media team, and they wanted to advertise on the podcast, and I said, let's do this. But I wanted to do it differently. I wanted to do it where I actually give you, the audience, something different, as opposed to just saying Go check out Divergent Media. I wanted you guys to at least get a special trial, some kind of tool to work with, so you can at least try out their stuff. And they said, Let's do edit ready. So edit ready is their transcoding tool. And I thought to myself, well, I don't know, you know, I've got media encoder and what have you. And they said, No, no, try it out. Give it a shot. See, compare the two. So I did. So I sat down and I compared. The speed, because that's one of the things that really sets Divergent Media apart, was how fast it can transcode things. And sure enough, when I dropped a 785 megabyte file into Edit Ready, it did it way faster than Media Encoder. But that's not really a scientific study. And what we wanted to do when I talked to them was we wanted to give you guys the chance to try this out and compare the speeds. So they're giving me permission to give you guys a 14-day trial. So what I need you to do is to go to divergentmedia.com/aotg. That's divergentmedia.com/aotg to get your 14-day trial. And when you do this, I want you to sit down and actually test out the speed. See which is faster between what you're using, whether it's Media Encoder, whether it's Episode, you're going to be surprised with how fast Edit Ready actually transcodes footage. The other thing is they do a lot of broad camera support. So if you're a shooter, an editor, or a digital assets manager, this is the tool you're going to want to use because it's quick, easy to use, and it'll get you quality files transcoded. Some of the other things that you should know about, it batch supports for DIT and edit workflows, easily creating dailies and ProRes footage, it's exceptional quality in the transcoding, it's got ProRes, DNxHD, H.264, LUT support, metadata controls, everything you would want in your transcoder. And like I said, the thing that really set it apart for me when I tested it is the speed. So go to divergentmedia.com AOTG and check it out for yourself. Take it, do a speed test, do everything you can to this, and enjoy it. And if you like it, then you can purchase it. It's only $49.99. And that's much cheaper than Compressor and Telestream's episode. So that's DivergentMedia.com slash AOTG. Now onto the show. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we interview Eddie Hamilton. We specifically discuss the film Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Now, one of the things you should note, at the moment my voice sounds pretty hoarse or rough, because I've had a cold. I actually record the intro separate from the actual interview, so my voice sounds, well I guess we'll say beautiful, but it sounds alright during the uh, actual interview. So you don't have to worry if you're, you're a little worried about my voice at the moment, it sounds better in the interview. That said, this was going to be posted many weeks ago and I cut it all and I showed it to Eddie. That's part of my rules is if an editor requests it I always send them the files before I post. And I do that so that if they feel uncomfortable about anything they can always ask me to remove it. Now, Eddie was a little worried that I was going to, I guess, spoil some of the film because he gets really excited and then I get really excited and we just talk about the film. So we kind of spoil a lot in the film. And so we were chatting about it on email and he said, well, why don't we just put it out when the film becomes available via rentals? So iTunes, Amazon, anything like that. And guess what? This week is when it becomes available. So here's what I want you to do. If you haven't seen Rogue Nation, go download it on iTunes, on Amazon, wherever you get your streaming services, and watch it. It's a great film, a lot of fun. The scene in the water, I love the references to Hitchcock I love. It's a lot of fun, it's a fun film. So check it out, and then come back and listen to our podcast. With that said, I had a blast interviewing Eddie. He's very excited about story and story structure, and you can hear it in his voice. And it's one of the pleasures of interviewing people is when they get excited about what they do. So please enjoy Eddie's excitement about storytelling during my interview with him about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. So I was wondering if you could tell me how you got Onto this film?
1: I was in my last few months on Kingsman, the Secret Service. We were actually on the dub stage near the end of the mix, but there were still quite a few visual effects to come and mix updates to come. Mm-hmm. And I had a call from my LA agent who said they want to meet you on Mission Impossible. And I was incredibly flattered and quite surprised because I've never done a film of that scale before. But then Rosenblatt, a bad robot, was keen for me to meet Chris Macquarie, the director. So they set up a meeting at Leavesden Studios in North London, which is where they very famously filmed Harry Potter. And Warner, Warner Brothers has recently bought that studio and invested a lot of money and made it into a really beautiful, modern, cutting-edge film studio with modern rooms and, and very fast internet and you know everything you need. Right now they're shooting Wonder Woman there, they're doing Fantastic Beasts. Uh, we did Mission Impossible there. They did Tarzan there, directed by David Yates. So it's a constant procession of huge films. Anyway, I had done Kingsman there as well. So I was familiar with the studio. Uh, I went up there on a Wednesday afternoon, I think, in about June, I think last, you no, know, June 20. 20- Yeah, June 2014, and I sat down with Chris to chat just about kind of movies in general, really. I wasn't allowed to read the script at that stage, so it was a very kind of general chat about, you know, some of the ideas that he had for the film and about the kinds of things that we'd worked on before. I thought it was going to be a 20-minute chat, and it turned into an hour-and-a-half-long chat. And so it was great fun, really. And then shortly after I left, I received a call from Ben. Rosenblatt at Bad Robot saying, "Hey, how did it go with Chris?" And you know, the ball started rolling from there. And I met Stephanie Ito, the head of Paramount post-production, and then they 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 offered me the job, which was terrific. You know, I'm I was thrilled, and it's what I've always dreamt of doing since I was seven years old. You know, to work on a movie, you know, a tentpole movie with big movie stars and you know, terrific cast and you know, an amazing writer director in Christopher Macquarie, who I got on really well with. You know, and you've, you're just working with the best people in the world, you know, great DP, great composer, and it's great production designers. I mean, really, it's it's just wonderful. It's wonderful. So that's how I got involved. And we started in August, basically August last year.
0: In one of the interviews I was reading, Christopher said that he was looking for an editor that he could, I guess, relate with or just sort of, I guess, essentially shoot the shit. yeah. Yeah. So I guess he found that in chatting about movies.
1: We did have a lot of fun working on the film Chris and I. I think he felt I shared his sensibilities about storytelling and about how to use the camera, how to move the camera, what constitutes a good shot for a film, you know, a nice composition and good use of foreground and background and midground and 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 how to move the camera to create emotion and accentuate certain story points. And interestingly when they started filming, they were in Vienna and then they were in Morocco. So for almost the first couple of months, I didn't really get to talk with Chris. So I was assembling some of the opera sequence and some of the car chase and the motorbike chase without Chris really being there. I spoke to him a couple of times on the phone, but it's only when really that they came back to London and Tom Cruise and Chris asked me, to put together a sizzle reel to show the crew as a kind of morale booster and just to show them everything that they'd worked hard to shoot up to that point. And I, I, I put something together in a couple of days and Chris and Tom really liked it. And I think that they found me a kind of um, a good collaborator in that I kind of saw the same film they did. Do you see what I mean? Like I had a, a similar sense of humour and I had an idea of how to juxtapose certain shots and, and my, my shot choices and stuff seemed to marry with what they Wanted. So we all got along very well, and Chris began to kind of trust me. And then some of the sequences are so complicated in terms of tiny bits of detail and punctuation and making sure that there's certain bits of story land that, you know, there would be quite often there would be sort of two or three units filming, and Chris would be taking care of two of them, and he would say, Hey, Eddie, can you go and you know, shoots and stuff with the third unit or, you know, insert unit or whatever. So so we did end up just, just being good friends. And I absolutely love filmmaking and I love film storytelling. And so it was an enormous pleasure to go to work every day and collaborate with them. And it was very, very, very hard work, don't get me wrong. And, you know, there were a lot of challenges associated with making a film as complex as Mission Impossible in you know, quite a short space of time, you know, about 11 months from the beginning of Principal Photography to when the film was released. And we originally had about 15, 16 16 months scheduled. So they they took five months off our post schedule, which was quite a challenge. But we knew in about January, so we were just going at full speed to hit the July release, you know, and we, we managed to
0: make it. Well, that was going to be one of my questions was they had pushed back the launch date for it. So how did you tackle that situation to make sure you met the new date?
1: Well, it's interesting. I think a lot happens in parallel. So I asked for sound designers to start with me about halfway through the shoot. And I would give them certain sections of the film that needed a lot of sound work. And they would kind of start aggressively on it. So I could start to build up quite a decent, you know, soundscape and start to tell some of the story with sound design that was very necessary for certain sequences so I, I already had the sound team working and the visual effects team were going at 100 miles an hour from the word go so the trick there was to turn over visual effects shots as soon as we could and start to do look development and start to get shots going so we could start giving feedback as quickly as possible and you know I worked with Chris When he had spare time, you know, he would come to the cutting room and work with me, but it wasn't that much. So it was more a case of just trying to get everything going. And then, you know, Joe Kramer, the composer, started and he knew what the deadline was. And then John Finkley, the music editor, was in charge of recording the actual opera in Vienna. So that was all going on as well. And we knew that there would be a lot of music editing to get the opera to fit in with the cut sequence that we eventually, you know, landed on. So there was just a lot going on in parallel. And I was working closely with Chris. And interestingly, you know, Tom Cruise was kept abreast of the cut every day. You know, he would be on the phone with Chris for, you know, around, you know, half an hour to an hour. And everything would be discussed. Everything that we were trying in the cut would be discussed. So there would be a good line of communication with producers and the director and myself. And, and Chris and I just put in the hours. You know, we we just worked very, very hard day in, day out. and we actually did our first friends and family screening nine days after the end of the shoot and it was running at about two hours 40 minutes I think so it was quite it was a little long and then we worked for a few more weeks and then we did our first test screening about five weeks after the shoot you know which was a proper test screening in New Jersey then we worked for a couple more weeks we did another little screening then we did two days of pickup shoots then we did at about 10 weeks after the end of principal photography, which is normally when the director's delivering their director's cut, we actually did our third test screening and we scored very, very highly. Everyone was very happy. The studio was very happy. So we felt like we'd cracked, you know, most of the story problems and everything was landing and the, the film played well and you know, we'd got the right balance of music and sound design. And so everyone was feeling very positive about the film and then maybe a week later we kind of locked the edit so about 11 weeks we had to cut the film which is not very long and then we dug straight into sound and there was constant visual effects reviews you know three times a week we did full 5.1 mixes for the sound for the soundtracks when we were doing the preview screening so the the whole sound team was working on the sound the entire time and then every mix we would do we would update Any ideas we had, and new sound design would go in. And so when we got hit, the final mix, which was a Dolby Atmos mix, we took all the work that we had done from our three previews and rolled it into the Atmos mix and sort of continued from there. So nothing was wasted along the way. And we always had the deadline. We always knew that the film was coming out on July 31st and you know there were trailers released in February and March saying tickets on sale now so we knew that we we had to make it and we just very calmly and professionally worked incredibly hard and my entire editorial team worked very hard visual effects team I mean everybody was just working hard but in a kind of controlled intensity so nobody got burned out you know the, the, it was always, people would put their hands up if they needed help you know and if we needed more resources paramount would very kindly make sure we got who we needed to make sure that we always hit every deadline
0: you'd mentioned tom cruise being kept abreast of everything that was happening yes and everyone i've talked to who's ever worked with him says he's a ball of energy but also more importantly he's extremely focused and engaged with the filmmaking process and excited, I guess you could say about it. Yes. Did you interact with him at any, at any point and And what was that relationship like, especially since he was also starring in the film?
1: Mission Impossible, the Palmer's Mission Impossible from 96, was the first film that he produced. So this franchise is his baby, really. He has produced all these films and he is passionate about filmmaking he's passionate about every kind of genre and every kind of film as you can tell by his filmography he's done all kinds of movies he loves every part of the process you know he loves costume design he loves production design he loves cinematography he loves acting you know he loves editing he loves music he loves sound and he knows intimately every stage of the process because You know, he's been doing it for well over 30 years and he's been at the very top of his game, you know, all that time. And so it is enormously fun to collaborate with somebody who's so passionate about it. And it's interesting. He has a very clear idea of the emotion that he wants the audience to feel throughout the film. And then kind of Chris's job and my job was to to make sure the audience experienced that as they were watching the movie.
0: That sounds uh, amazing. So like he was, he's like, I want this sort of emotion evoked.
1: Here. Yeah, you know, you know, right at the end of the film, for example, when the character of Ilsa Faust drives away in the car, you know, he just said, you know, I, I want the audience to feel, you know, that she's kind of, you know the loss of that character and that sadness that she's leaving and Mm -hmm. and so there was more of a scene after that where Ethan walks back and like chats to the guys in the police truck but you know he said no no I think what I'd love the audience to feel is just I want I want to leave them with the image of her driving away in that car and then slowly crossfade to Alec Baldwin sitting in the in the senate room in the senate chamber just reflecting on what he's been through you know and it was a terrific idea and it it worked perfectly for the emotion that he wanted that's just one example of, of many and he leads by example you know he always demands the very best of himself and rightly demands the very best of everybody who's collaborating with him on making the film and I I found that very rewarding and stimulating and challenging and exciting to be working with someone who's so passionate about making a great film. You know, it's 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 a pleasure. You know, it makes going to work exciting and and, you know, like I said, just rewarding because you, you're working for somebody who really knows what they want and they're really passionate about doing it. And we have the resources to make the shots that we want you know, because it's, it's a tentpole movie. So we can do this incredible sequence underwater and we can have, you know, large scale set pieces on motorbikes, which are almost impossible to film, but they figure out a way to do it. And, you know, it really is such fun and so rewarding and great that, you know, the movie turned out as well as it did and, and reached audiences around the world. You know, it's why we all do this job is to be storytellers and, and be in a theatre and watch the film and feel the audience reacting to the film and gasping at certain points and laughing and reacting. And, you know, all the, everything that you thought about when you were cutting the film is kind of brought to life as soon as the audience interact with it. And it's, it's just the best feeling, you know, it's why we all do what we do. And I never lose sight of the joy of that. You know, it's, it's, always, it's always incredibly fun to find myself in a theater you know and i've i've seen the film hundreds of times when you work on these films you watch them sometimes two or three times a day for months and months and months but it was always a pleasure you know it was always a privilege and a pleasure and i loved it and you know i, I can't wait to do it again if it works out like that you know
0: know, one of the things i noticed with tom cruise when he's producing these is that he other than brian de palmer and john wu who's i guess it was his first or second English film he chooses directors who are early in their career or like have a Mm. few films under their belts and he gives them sort of this free range or not I guess not free range but allows them to explore their creative the creative side so like when I see this um all the films it's they've each got this unique style to them and I'm wondering how did you work with Chris to come up with any any styles or was there any sort of discussion about creating a style for Chris or working with Chris?
1: Well, that's, it's a very interesting question. And I, I, I haven't really thought of it like that, but I guess I kind of knew that, but it's not something that I necessarily thought of. But with Chris, he followed his gut instinct for storytelling and for how he wanted to move the camera and tell the story. And quite often when a director is in the trenches, you know, and in the heat of battle of, of filming day in, day out, very, very long days sometimes you can lose sight of where you are. And I always said to him, just follow your gut instinct because it is excellent. You know, you are creating great shots. The acting is great. The story is working. If, if in doubt, just, just reach into your instinct and don't worry too much because your instincts are, are great. And he has a very classic sense of film storytelling, which is, you know, not to cut too fast and to make sure that every single shot in the film is about something and has a subject and has a reason to exist, and the camera is moving for a reason, and the cuts are precise. They're all progressing the story, and they're all increasing the suspense, and they're all about making sure that you're giving the audience a little bit more information so that the the little jigsaw of the story is slowly building in their head, you know, as they're watching the film. And I would say, you know, his style is more, you know, he just has a very classic sensibility. He talked about Three Days of the Condor and he talked about the Parallax View and we reference some of those classic 70s thrillers, you know, not explicitly, but certainly that's kind of his natural sensibility, you know, is kind of classic film storytelling. And so I have a similar sensibility. I think, you know, I've worked with Matthew Vaughan several times and he has... A slightly different sense of competition to Chris, but not not radically different. And again, it's all about very classic filmmaking. It's very interesting because when I worked on X-Men First Class with Matthew, I was working alongside Lee Smith, who is one of the best, if not, I, I may even go so far as to say the best editor in the world. Maybe. I mean, you've got, you know, Chris Rouse and you've got Michael Kahn, you know, the, the usual suspects who who were you know legends but certainly Lee Smith is right up there with the best of the best and it was very interesting watching how he cut on X-Men First Class I learned an awful lot from him and so I've managed to kind of assimilate all that and, and sort of bring it forward to working with Chris and we had a similar sensibility you know he would sometimes simplify some of the cuts that I'd done we were very thorough with it with the dailies I mean we would go through every scene in the film cut by cut and evaluate it and, and work at it to really make sure it was the best it could be one trick that I had for Speeding up shots, you know, line reading selections. I mean, a lot of people do this, I know, but I asked my assistants to build up a huge selects role for every scene of every line of dialogue delivered from every camera angle. So if I wanted to listen to the 45 different ways a particular line was delivered, I could load up that timeline and whiz down to that line and press play. And we just literally would see every single delivery of the line back to back. And Chris would say, you know, let's try take 27 or let's try you know, not take 27, but version 27 or version 33 or something. So I could swap out lines incredibly fast. And we could make progress very, very, very quickly, which I think Chris enjoyed I've to pride myself in working fast and efficiently and being very, very organized in the Avid Media Composer project. So I can find everything very quickly. And we can just whiz through and, and make progress. But Chris was very thorough. And, you know, we had a lot of discussions about music even though we didn't cut with music because he prefers to cut with no music at all he just likes to feel the, the the rhythms of the scenes and then add music later because obviously if the scene plays without music it will always play with music better most of the time and then we we wanted to choose specific places in the film where we did not have music so I'm really proud of the fact that the moment that Tom you know Ethan Hunt jumps in to the intake where he goes into the Taurus and underwater, there isn't the music just swells and then and disappears. And then we spend time with Benji walking along the security corridor with the combination locks and the gate analysis. And Ethan is underwater swimming around trying to swap the profiles. And we just played that purely for suspense and purely for sound design. And both Chris and I were enormously pleased that. You know, we didn't end up needing score. We just let the audience just live in that moment. It's very similar to the CIA breaking in in the first mission where it's all just played purely with sound design and breathing. And so we had a lot of fun with that. And then we used the music just at the end when Ilsa jumps in. And then again, the car chase had no music. You know, we were just able to go completely to town with the sound design and make it like roar off the screen and come alive. And I get a lot of people you know very kindly on twitter saying how much they enjoyed it and you know it's very rewarding when you get that kind of immediate feedback from the audience but then the moment we're in the motorcycle chase we can blast the music up to 11 and really kick us into gear and give us a huge shot of adrenaline and you really feel like you're taken to a kind of another level of excitement because there's been no music before that we all know that in the um, the death star uh, assault in star wars the first half of it has no music at all and then when the music starts you know when the first x-wing crashes on the death star sur- surface the music starts and then it all just ramps up and up towards the end so where you don't have music is, is a very careful choice that you should consider so that the, when it does come in the music has all more impact and i was really chuffed that we we managed to hold on to those sections of the movie so that people could just bring their own sensibilities to it so the music wasn't holding their hand or telling them how to feel you know it was really effective and it's there's nothing more rewarding when you're in a screening room than for example the sequence where tom drops where the, where the, the robotic arm knocks him underwater and he drops those two yellow profiles. I was just going to say that. So yeah, stressful. everybody, everybody <laughs> in the audience just goes, oh! there's this collective <laughs> gasp, and because there's no music, you can hear it. You know, it's, yeah. it's so rewarding, and you know that it's working. And you know, literally, those shots were finished four or five hours before we made the DCP. You know, we were there was a team of fifty visual effects artists at Double Negative, all working round the clock for day after day after after day trying to get these shots looking up to standard to be in the film and literally we went in at you know midday on the last day and gave them notes then we went in again at you know five o'clock and gave them more then we went in at 11 p.m and gave them notes and then literally at 3 a.m the shots were delivered and the next morning we slotted them into the dcp and graded you know onto the the resolve timeline And and color corrected them and then literally made the DCP. And then the premiere was two days later. You know, it was it was right down to the wire. Very, very exciting stuff. But when you watch the movie and you know that it works, it's like, yes, we were watching previs almost completely up to that point, you know, and then finally these amazing photoreal shots get dropped in. It's very exciting.
0: (laughs) The other moment that I love the use of sound in is at the bar where the sound just cuts out completely. And oh, like yes, yes, yes. Little like yes. crackles or something, at least in our theater. And it just... Well, no, no so... that's
1: very exciting. Now, you mean, you mean the kind of restaurant by the yeah, Tower yeah. of London? Yeah. Yeah, so this is what happened with that, right? They basically went away and shot that scene. Um, and they were doing night shoots. So I didn't really see them. I was just cutting the stuff during the day. And I remember building up that Sergio Leone kind of suspense moment where they're all staring at each other beforehand. And because um, it was written like that in the script. And I could see what Chris was doing when he was shooting the scenes. I was like, no, I totally get what he's doing here. And it took me quite a while to get all those looks and the eye lines and everything lined up. And I remember the first time I put that scene together, I threw it together. And I had the dailies from the knife fight shortly after. And I was working on that scene as well. I was like, no, I know it's not working yet. I'll come back to it. And I finished the rest of the... The finale because I wanted to make sure that was working. And I knew in the back of my mind that little section where they're all staring at each other before the gunfight kicks off needed work. And I went back and I looked at it and I worked on it for like another three or four hours. And I thought to myself, you yeah, know, it wouldn't be really cool if the sound just dipped out to nothing here. So I just grabbed my Atmos track, which was kind of, you know, bar walla, and I and I just faded it down on the timeline just grabbed the keyframes and yanked them down to zero and gave them like, you know, 10 or 12 seconds to fade off. Same with the music and same with the dialogue track. And then I just thought, I know, I know. And then I played it and I was like, yeah, this is really cool. This is so exciting. We literally have, we'll have digital zero sound in the theater, you know, complete silence. And I just tried it. It was just a a sound design idea that I had, you know, in the cutting room. And then I showed it to Chris and he was like, that's pretty cool. I really like that. (laughs) And we refined it a little bit, but basically that idea, stuck and i showed it to the sound designer and they were like no 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 that's awesome we're going to do that and i love the it's just when the gun shots and the music like thuds in straight Mm -hmm. after that it's all the more powerful because your ears are kind of straining to hear something you know yeah so the when the sound comes in it has all the more impact no it was really good fun playing with that and coming up with that idea and seeing it realized from you know literally my first assembly of the scene all the way through to to when we were sitting you know in our final dolby atmos mix and i was watching it back and i was thinking no this is really cool it's good fun and i i was thrilled that it managed to to you know that little nug- nugget of an idea stayed on the timeline all the way through it was really good fun
0: no it seems like you're really engaged with how the audience reacts to a moment and When I was doing research, you had studied psychology for a bit? That
1: is true. I did do a degree in psychology. And I was
0: wondering, like, have you found yourself relying on it or using it or is it involved in any way in your cutting process?
1: It's very, it's a good question, Gordon. I think that, you know, interestingly, if you edit, if you are an, an editor, you have to have a certain interest in living life and experiencing human emotions, because that is all we do every day, is try and create an emotional response in the audience watching our film. You know, we want people to engage with our stories. We want them to care about the characters and we want them to root for them. And we want people to to get lost in the film. That's the holy grail. You know, you watch a movie and when you're just watching it and it's great fun, there's nothing better and the greatest films do that so effortlessly and you think over the years that's why great films stand the test of time and and I'm not saying necessarily that any film that I've done is is a great film and obviously the holy grail is to have your movie you know stand the test of time and be watched in 20 years 50 years. My point is that I think the fact that I studied psychology and I was interested in that science indicates that I'm the kind of person who's interested in human emotions and not necessarily manipulating the audience but you know to a certain degree that kind of thing and I, I certainly you know I did auditory perception and visual perception so I have a good idea of how the eye perceives and how the ear listens but you know developmental psychology and statistics is, doesn't apply that much to filmmaking but I think it's just about the kind of person that you are and I I am just very interested in human emotions and in trying to use every little trick that we have as editors and as filmmakers to manipulate the audience and give them an experience that they've paid their hard-earned money to get in a theatre. And I've said this a few times in interviews, but you know, audiences buy a movie ticket to have an emotional experience you know, a certain type of emotional experience, depending on the kind of movie that they're buying a ticket for. And it is our job to manipulate them and give them that experience. And some people say that manipulating is is a dirty word, but I genuinely don't think so. I think that people want to be manipulated. You know, that is why they're buying a ticket to have an emotional experience of some kind. And we wanted to engage people and make them laugh and make them gasp and make them excited and make them intrigued and give them a mystery and a puzzle and wonder what's going to happen next. And all that stuff is what we wanted to do. And and so all I would say is studying psychology is not hugely relevant, but it just means that I'm the kind of person who's interested in that stuff, which is what we do as editors every day. so
0: Now, I wanted to ask you about the scene, the opera scene, because it pays homage to Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much mm-hmm. and I was wondering how you approached editing the scene and did you have a lot of pressure or did you feel a lot of pressure in building the scene?
1: I would say it was easily the most complicated scene of the film to do. It's about 17 minutes I think. Maybe 14 to 17 minutes depending on where you count the start of it to the end of it. It was the very first shot of principal photography. So the very first shot of principal photography was Ethan and Ilsa sailing down the side of the opera house down the rope that he attaches to the flagpole that was the very first thing they filmed and the very last thing that was filmed was the shot of Ethan climbing up the ladder inside the opera house and the camera pulled back to reveal Ilsa loading her rifle in the foreground so that we tied the geography of those two characters together and all the little tiny inserts and the geography and you know the lighting booth and benji downstairs and on the stage and backstage was filmed scattershot throughout the entire six month shoot oh wow you know and so it was a case of slowly slowly building the scene up i wasn't there in vienna so i cut the scenes in vienna and i used captions and i used bits of storyboards and tiny little bits of previews to kind of build the scene up And then they built the backstage of the opera house at a giant rehearsal space called LH2 in West London, which was the biggest movie set I have ever seen in my life. The entire back of the opera with lighting rigs and sets and scaffold and curtains and everything was built from nothing. Just quite extraordinary to see that. And... So then they filmed the inside of the Opera House, everything that was on the stage, Ethan climbing around behind, fighting with the blonde assassin on the trestles above the stage, seeing Ilsa in the tower, grabbing the flute gun, you know, all that stuff was shot there. And I was on set as they were shooting it, and I would hoover the video tap off the video assist playback and AMA it and transcode it in my laptop media composer i had an encrypted drive with all the days on so i could work on the film wherever i was you know wherever they needed me to be i could plug in my laptop and work and i was there cutting the fights and cutting everything as they were shooting it and then i would say to chris we're missing this little tiny bit of action so i need to see tom walk across the stage in front of the tower to get to the staircase where he goes up backstage it was like a massive jigsaw puzzle, and I totally understood what Chris was after. And, you know, he was very keen on scoring that sequence with the actual opera from the moment it started. And I knew that it would be quite a challenge of music editing, and we would kind of end where the high note of Ness and Dormer hits, and Ethan pulls the trigger to shoot the Chancellor in the shoulder. And we would work back from there. And then we would be organically cutting the scene for months and months and then re editing the music to make it fit. Then they filmed Benji underneath the Opera House looking at his e ink program. Mm-hmm. Then they would film the lighting booth. And then it was all about the eye lines for the cop and making sure that because the lighting booth wasn't there in the opera house. So they shot that little bit and stuck it into the wide shots that they'd done in Vienna. So it was very, very complicated. And Chris and I worked harder on that. Maybe, maybe on the exposition for the tourist sequence, when they're talking about planning the tourist heist in Morocco, that was a very difficult sequence as well. But the opera certainly was weeks and weeks and weeks of work. And we refined it and we refined it endlessly after every screening, we would go back and improve it and improve it. And then I would get certain beats of the music to land on certain bits of action of the fight or certain cuts would land on certain beats of the music that Chris liked. And we would massage the edit to make that fit. So it it really was a labor of love and passion for months and months and something which I know I'm immensely proud of and Chris's you know, hugely proud of as well, because he had this vision of a sequence in his head. He hadn't seen The Man Who Knew Too Much for a very long time. He had a vague recollection of a shot of the camera tracking along music in an opera score and a libretto. And when I went back and looked at The Man Who Knew Too Much, I showed it to Chris towards the end of the scene. And I said, oh, look at this, this shot of the music. You can see the conductor's baton there's a silhouette of the conductor's baton over these notes. Yeah. And that's what Hitchcock did. And then he said, I think we can do better. You know, we've got more modern cameras, better lenses. So we went and we got our music and we did a more dynamic shot across the music, which took, believe it or not, about eight hours to film because it was so difficult to get the, the this extraordinary T-Rex lens, which is, you know, it's almost like two feet long. And it's literally about half an inch away from the music. And we had to move it very slowly so that it was smooth and then we sped it up like a thousand percent. And it's just one shot in the film, but it's really exciting when you see that. The music's kind of whizzing along and we stop on the note and the audience realizes what's going to happen. And it was just very difficult, but we always knew it was going to be. And you just literally put one foot in front of the other and you slowly build it up and you refine it and you refine it like any artistic process. you know, God is in the details. So it's, it's only at the very, very end when you're really fine tuning it that it all suddenly kind of sits in and works and starts to really play. And, you know, we were worried that we may have to augment the opera with score at certain points. But we, what we ended up doing was they had recorded certain passages, certain arias from the opera from the beginning and from the the end of the second act and the beginning of the third act of the opera. So we had quite a bit of extra bits of music that were not featured directly in what was being performed on the stage. So occasionally we would take a little bit from act one and insert it into the end of act two, a bit of orchestra, for example, where we needed a little bit more energy. But that meant that we could purely use the opera to score the scene and never rely on score to help us. You know, So anyone who is familiar with Turandot will be slightly offended at how we crunched all these little bits of music together, but it it does make for a really fantastic, memorable set piece that will hopefully stand the test of time over the years. Who knows?
0: (laughs) I was watching it. I was like, oh, if they have a piece of music, just like in the Hitchcock one, and then all of a sudden you guys cut to it. And it was like, perfect. (laughs) Yeah, no,
1: well, I'm thrilled that you felt like that. It was certainly, you know, all credit to Chris. It was just, it was totally in his head. That whole scene was in his head and he really had to fight to preserve it. And, you know, it was enormously complicated and, you know, it, it required so much resources And there were times at which he would just go, I think, am I going mad? You know, is this ever going to work? You know, I'm losing the wood for the trees. And again, I would say, Chris, it's working. It's really exciting. It's great. Just keep going. You know, we'll get there. We'll get there. And then the last few little bits that we needed, we picked up on our insert days. You know, we had a surgical list of like four or five moments that we really needed to just literally connect bits of geography in the audience's mind. Then it all worked. And You know, when we were screening it, people were really into it. We were getting great feedback. So we thought, you know, this is going to work. This is going to be great.
0: Now, you had mentioned a scene where exposition was required. Yes. One of the questions I had, and uh, I hope I I say this right, but I was wondering with regards to exposition, because in films, particularly suspense or, or moments where you have some action that you have to get to really quickly, you have to rely on exposition. And for whatever reason in Mission Impossible... You do a really good job of giving us what's important through the exposition, what's not going to bog down the film, and then moving forward with the, the action or the moment that's important. And I was wondering how you approached exposition scenes so that you don't overload them with information, but move forward in the storytelling.
1: Sometimes you do end up with characters having an argument and revealing exposition through an argument which is quite common. If a scene has conflict, it's dramatically interesting. And if you can get exposition into the argument, then that is great. But the trickiest, in fact, the sequence that I'm most proud of in this film, which may not appear complex on the outside, but was phenomenally difficult, is the scene where Ethan and Ilsa and Benji are discussing how they are going to break into the Taurus. And it starts from the little section where she goes, I can tell you, it's impossible. And there's a great tracking on Ethan and he looks at Benji and Benji gives him a look and then music starts and we start discussing the heist and then we pull back from a video screen and we see them all talking. Now, what Chris did in the writing of the scene, which was very clever, is he puts Ethan in the audience's point of view of not knowing anything. So Ethan is the audience and he is asking questions that the audience would ask. Benji and Ilsa know all the answers and they are telling him the rules of engagement of the heist. But what Chris did in the writing, which was so clever, is she starts explaining how to get in. She says, you've got to get through a security gate then you've got to go through, sorry, a fingerprint guarded elevator. Then you've got to go through combination locks. And Benji goes, I get to wear a mask. We get to pretend to be the agent who stole the ledger in the first place and I get to wear a mask. And then we see the mask machine. And we see him putting on a mask and looking like the agent who stole the ledger. Then we see him going in. So we explain, okay, this is what he's doing. Then he's doing this. Then he's doing this. And then she goes, no, the last bit, there's gate analysis corridor. And if you do that, it's going to analyze how you walk. And you can't impersonate exactly how someone walks. And so you're going to get caught. And then you see Benji with the mask being ripped off. And then he says, "Okay, I'm going to be thrown in jail. So what you do in that really clever little bit of story is you show him as the agent walking through all the things he's going to have to do. And then you show the gate analysis machine and then you see the mask being ripped off. So you're teaching the audience about the mask machine, which is not going to appear in that scene. It's going to crop up at the very end of the movie. So you're saying for people who've never seen Mission Impossible before, which will be a percentage of the audience, these masks exist and they're they make you look like someone else. So believe you know that it's just something that happens. And so we set that up to pay off later in the film. We explain about how he's got to get in. We explain about the security corridor with the combination locks and the gate analysis machine. You know, it's all just set up there beautifully. And Ethan is asking questions. And then they talk about the water and he goes, right, where's the water come from? And she goes, well, the water intake is inside the plant and you have to go through here. And she says, "Uh, there's no metal allowed in. So there's, you know, you can't use oxygen tanks. And and the audience is going, okay, so he's going to have to hold his breath. And then Benji goes, but hang on, how about if he just free dives? How long will it take him to do that? And. It's two minutes. And then, well, what about changing the security profiles? And he goes, well, it's like a minute. So Ethan's going, well, I'm going to have to hold my breath for three minutes. And, <laughs> and then Benji does that great thing where he says, hey, don't worry about you. You'll be fine. It doesn't sound impossible to me. And everyone's laughing and we're just making a joke about it. And Ethan's going, wait a second. This is this is not that easy. You know, Benji, come on. I You know. But we just have a lot of fun. But then from that point, the audience knows all the rules for that whole scene. And then we just play the scene out and we remind them a couple of things. We say the profile is in slot 108. Benji says that to him as he's going up the elevator. But we're allowed to play the whole scene just for suspense. And it is so liberating because the audience knows the rules and they know what Benji's got to do to get in. They know what Ethan's got to do to get in. And we can just play it and then we can just dial up things going wrong you know the water gets switched back on and then he drops the he drops the profiles and he's got to swim against the water you know the audience knows it all so we don't have to explain it we can just let them feel this increase in pressure and drama and oh he's got to hold his breath now he's got to swim against the current and benji's going to get caught and what's going to happen and oh no he doesn't know which profile is which he's going to have to guess and everyone's just holding their breath and it's like what's oh and then Oh my word, is he gonna drown? Are they gonna are they gonna kill him? Oh, what are they, you know? So it's just it's just great. And again, Chris had prevised this scene, and we were working with the previs for ages, and we're like, is this gonna work? Is this gonna work? And then you show it to the audience. And literally, the first two test screenings, it was previs in that scene. And you know, what's slightly disheartening is the audience that we explain at the beginning of the test screening, there's a little section that looks like you know a computer cutscene, and it'll look animated but it will be photo when it's done but the, there's a little kind of there's just a little smatter of laughter as people are like oh wait a second it's previous and that looks you know but but then they get into it and they understand and they they engage with it luckily and So we knew it was working. But, you know, I think that little section of exposition was incredibly difficult to get the balance of everything right. Chris and I, I know, are very proud of it. And we tried it many different ways before we found the exact combination of cutaways and jokes and music and little dramatic beats and inserts and gadgets and you know and i'm just thrilled with the way it's turned out and i never imagined it could be that good but we just kept working at it and we got it that good and so i'm thrilled that it all just worked you know and literally i'm most proud of that like four or five minute section in the movie it was so difficult and chris and i worked at it and worked at it but we got there and so that's exposition
0: (laughs) well it's funny because that was the scene that sort of made me go wait a second we're getting we're being given all this information verbally but it's done in a way that doesn't feel like exposition in a sense yeah exactly
1: say. it's 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 i mean full credit to chris yeah for writing it like that it's it's uh, i'm incredibly envious of his writing skills because he does make stuff look so easy and it's not and i have tried writing and everything that i write is a combination of the last four films i've watched you know literally i, I it's very derivative and and when i read original fresh Great writing. I'm always completely in awe of the people who've done it because I'm, I'm just incapable of it. And the same thing goes, you know, if you think about that opera sequence, the reason Ethan is walking around backstage is to teach you the geography of the opera house so that by the time he gets onto the trestle and you see... There's the guy in the lighting booth, and there is Ilse in the tower, and there is the Austrian chancellor. You totally know the geography by the time you get to the end, and you're not confused. You're just engaged with the action. You know what the stakes are. You know what everyone is doing, even though we've been telling many parallel stories in the minutes leading up to that. It's just, you know, the way he choreographed it all is incredibly elegant and it's like a cheat it's like i'm going to teach you the whole geography of the opera house without you even knowing it so that when we need you to know it it'll all just be in your head ready to go you know it's great fun
0: the other scene that stuck out for me was for exposition was the very opening scene with the plane yes you essentially have to get the information out so that we can get to the suspense right because Usually, that would be doled out over an hour-long film or all this, but we're just dropped right into the experience of what's happening. Yes. Now, that scene was shown on trailers and in every, you know, YouTube video on, like, how Tom Cruise was hanging onto the side of the, the plane by himself, actually attached to it, or hanging on an actual plane. How did you... I get Well, I guess I got two questions for this. One is, how did you and Chris work together to make sure that that wasn't the peak of the film, that the film gets crazier and more suspenseful the more you get into it. But also that scene, because you were talking about parallel editing at the, the opera house, that scene also has three or four locations that were cutting between three or four characters. How did you find a balance for that scene?
1: That scene, there was a point in the development of the script where it may have been part of the third act. But when Chris was developing the script, it didn't feel right to him. And so almost the only other place it could go was as a kind of cold open right at the beginning of the film. And the scene does tie into what happens directly afterwards at the record store. You know, him successfully pulling off that mission at the start is referred to when he's getting the mission for the rest of the movie, you know. So it does tie in, but it is an excuse to introduce our heroes get conflict, because again, the exposition is done through conflict. You know, Brandt, Jeremy Renner's character is arguing with Benji and Luther about how they're going to get the package off the plane. And so it's all done with conflict. And there was one draft of the script where Brandt was going to be in Washington and Luther and Benji were both going to be in the airport by the plane, trying to stop it, take off. And then we thought, no, it would be kind of be, be be more interesting if Benji was there on the ground, but then Luther was somewhere else. And then originally Ethan just appeared on the wing of the plane, like we saw him on a satellite image running along and then jumping onto the wing of the plane. But we realised that we needed a proper shot, a proper heroic entrance for Ethan when he says, can you open the door? And Benji's like, wait, what are are you, are you? And then he goes, he goes, can you open the door? And you see him running along the side and you're like, wait a second, is he going to? And then you realise he's jumping onto the wing of the plane. And then Benji's incredulous. And then he says, Benji, open the door. You know, one thing that we discovered in the edit room, actually, which is quite an interesting little tidbit, is originally Benji... Benji said, yeah, yeah, I can open the door. I can open the door. Don't worry, don't worry. And he starts going on his tablet and opening the door, but it takes him quite a long time to do it. And people in our very first test screening said, why doesn't Benji open the door faster? You know, what's so hard about opening the door? Ethan's hanging on the plane for ages and Benji's smart and he would just get the door open straight away. So one of the ideas that I said to the guys is, hey, what, what about if when he tries to open the door, he's presented with a huge array of Cyrillic menus you know, Russian menus. And he has to kind of navigate his way through all this really complex engineering submenus and stuff before he can get to something that looks like a door opening. And, you know, his basic IMF Russian course hasn't taught him about how to hack into an A400 and figure out the engineering menus and stuff. And they said, oh, that's great. That's great. Let's do that. Let's do that. So we retrofitted those shots and the the visual effects graphics team came up with all these really complex Cyrillic menus. And then I put those in the film. And on our second test screening, all the notes went away because everyone realized that it was going to take Benji a while. And then he would accidentally open the back door because he would find a Russian word that said door and he would press it and then it would be the back and then it would explain and and then all the comedy just worked. But once Ethan is in the air, the cross cutting kind of stops at that point. So the moment Ethan takes off and gets in the plane, then it's all stopped. But it took a long time to get that scene right. The music had to have a certain bounce and certain sense of playfulness and fun. So the audience would feel like, oh, okay, I I remember this kind of, oh yeah, we're back here, this is fun. I'm meeting these characters again everything's going wrong as usual and Ethan's probably going to save the day and oh yeah I'm back in Mission Impossible land and the other thing that Chris did that was brilliant was he asked Joe the composer to write this really teasy music over the logos before that which just started teasing the theme but never played it it just kind of got going and then stopped. So you were really teased. And then we can save the music for when the opening credits start, when Ethan blasts out of the back of the plane and we're in the music and then we can just let rip. And everyone's like, yes, I remember this. This is great. I'm really enjoying it. And we had that terrific, you know, opening title sequence. And then we're, we're into the story of the film and, again it was very difficult you know I have to be honest with you it was a scene that we worked out and we worked out and we worked out but when we eventually got all the cross-cutting right and we got the menus on the tablet right and then all the story started to land for the audience and then it just worked you know as a little opening sequence and certainly it was a challenge to start with that and for people to go holy moly if they're starting with that where are they going to go from here you know but it worked you know, we scored incredibly highly in our test screenings, and so we knew that the film did work with that, even though it may feel top-heavy. It was a nice way to kind of start big, and if you see it in a Dolby Atmos theatre, you know, when Tom is taking off on the plane, it is a room-shaking theatrical experience. It's it's quite extraordinary, actually, how the sound team, what they did there with the sound to really put the audience in the eye of the storm with a huge A400 plane taking off. You know, it's like honestly I could have died happy at that point I was like wow I've dreamed of this kind of moment in my life of being in a mixing theatre working on a gigantic movie with Tom Cruise hanging on the side of the plane and here I am you know it really is you know it's a moment to treasure you know and I I never lose sight of how exciting that is to be doing that you know I never take it for granted it is the most enormous privilege and I love it I absolutely love it and treasure those moments you know when they happen
0: now i have one last question for you that i like to ask everyone i interview yes and that's uh what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch
1: it's it's hard to know what you count do you count ferris bueller's day off as a guilty pleasure because it's just a classic
0: yeah it's it more it depends on the person some people would consider it a guilty pleasure yeah i mean
1: i i I mean for me that's my favorite probably my favorite comedy Mm -hmm. uh of all time so i would go with ferris bueller's day off i think I mean, does Lethal Weapon 2 count? I don't yeah. really, because that, that's another classic. I mean, I love Lethal Weapon yeah. 2. I think, you know, that is is—that is just, I think that's Shane Black at the peak of his powers, you know, yeah. as a writer, and Richard Donner as just brilliant as a director. I mean, that film, you know, oh, yeah, I love it. Lethal Weapon 2, let's go for that one. Everyone right. should see it.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you very much for letting me interview you.
1: It's, it's a pleasure, Gordon. Thank you for having me on. A real pleasure to talk to you.
0: that was my interview with Eddie. Now, before I let you guys leave, just remember that we have Divergent Media as a sponsor, and they've given us this cool 14-day trial of Edit Ready, which is a phenomenal transcoder. Super fast, at least when I tried it. And that's the thing, if you want to try it, it's free to try for 14 days just to our listeners. So go to divergentmedia.com. Now I'd like to thank Eddie for joining me and allowing me to interview him. Of course, I'd like to also thank our sponsors, Divergent Media. Remember, go to divergentmedia.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.